Hello and welcome to episode 21 of my Storytime with Boone podcast. 21. <laughs> that feels like something of a milestone, that, doesn't it? And thanks for joining me again, and thanks also to all of you who've already subscribed to my other podcast, Set to Go. Uh, if you've not heard that one yet, it's devoted entirely to new, unsigned or upcoming music. On this episode, I'll tell you about the day that I nearly died at the hands of a very well-known 1990s it girl. How I befriended an iconic record producer and ended up with my own set of keys uh, for his luxury pad. And what it's like being very ill, a long way from home, on the road with a rock and roll band. I'll tell you what inspired me to write the Inspiral Carpet song, Generations, in 1991. And we'll have a little catch-up with the uh, progress of my 12-year-old son, Oscar Louis Louie, who only started playing bass guitar six months ago. It's his first ever instrument, and uh, he's already jaw-droppingly good at it. And don't forget to check out the Spotify playlist that I put together every week, where you can hear full versions of the tracks on the episode, and other tracks as well, which are in some way connected to the stories that I've been telling. The unsigned upcoming band that you're going to hear at the end of this episode, a Manchester five-piece band called Foxtails, with an exquisite track called Spider. As always, this podcast is brought to you with the pure skills of our friends at Distorted Productions. And if you want to follow me or get in touch with me, Twitter is the best way, at The Real Boone. OK, let's do it. Storytime with Boone. Subscribe now on iTunes. Did I ever tell you about that time that I had a, a near-death experience at the hands of a, a very well-known 1990s hit girl. Did not tell you. I'll tell you now. In August of 1990, when the Inspirals were enjoying quite a nice level of success, really, I got invited to take part in a big uh, charity event for Radio 1. And our debut album, Life, had just gone gold. It got to uh, number two in the British album chart in, uh, in March of that year. And we'd recently had a big hit single as well with um, This is How It Feels. So I got the call. And my first response was really one thing. This sounds all right. You know, a day hanging out with loads of celebs and all expenses paid. Probably a decent bar knocking about. Nice uh, hotel for night. Tan the mini bar. So I asked our manager, Binzy, Binzy Smith, I said, uh, get, get me some more info. He said, yeah, well, he said, it's, uh, yeah, he says, down in Middlesex. Loads of celebs. Uh, Kim Wilde. Candy Flip. Big fun. You and Tom. Uh, the Inspiral singer back then. Sunita, Betty Boo. I think Sonia as well. Sonia was on it. I know it sounds totally ridiculous now, doesn't it? And he, he carried on telling me, Bins, he said, it's all in aid of terminally ill children. Philip Schofield's going to be hosting it, and uh, Gary Davis is involved from Radio 1 as well. And I'm like, it sounds good, sounds like a laugh, I'll do it. He says, yeah, write this down here. So I got my file of facts out, and he says, right, Belfont, uh, Middlesex, Saturday, 18th of August. He said it would be great, should sell us a few extra albums. He says, no fee, but it's all expenses covered. It's called Splash for Starlight, and it's at uh, Prince's Water Park. And I'm like, hang on a minute, Bins, what did you just say then? He says, uh, Middlesex. And I said, no, the other bit. He says, uh, what, Philip Schofield, expenses? I says, no, terminal little kids. I said, no, you mentioned water. And he said, no, I didn't do that. He said, let me walk. And he shuffled, you could even shuffle. He said, oh, yeah. Yeah, it's a, it's a water park. Now, anybody who knows me well, knows I'm not really good around water. Even Binsey Smith back then knew that wasn't much of a water baby, right? I hated swimming at school. I'm not that keen now. I tolerate it. I do it to keep my wife and babies happy and that. I do go to the swimming pool with them. And I said to him, they said, what, what kind of event is it? I said, I said, I thought it was just hanging out like a PA and that shakes some hands, have some photographs taken with kids. What's it all about, really? I said, oh, he said, well, there's a few games, you know, while you're there with the other celebs and that, it's all in good fun and, and that, no worries. And I said, Binzi, where, where are these games going to be then? Is there a gym or something? He said, uh, let me have a look here, let me look at the facts again. So he's, he's there shuffling, he said, right, Philip Schofield, 
um, Middlesex, Philip Scott. He kept mentioning Philip Scott, who knows if that would really sell it to me. He said inflatables and uh, he says, yeah, yeah, it's, it's at a water park. And I said, Binzi, it's water sports, isn't it? And he says, you what? I said, it's fucking water sports, isn't it? You know that I hate water, what are you playing at? He said, yeah, but it'll really push the album. You'll have a good day out, it'll push the album. We've got the new EP coming out soon as well, Island Ed EP, and it'll be a good networking exercise. So a couple of weeks later, I'm stood there by this lake in Middlesex in this bloody lime green wetsuit, tabard on with my number on it, 20 summer, looking like a right bell end. Philip Schofield stood next to me pissing himself. Loads of celebs, all probably really good swimmers, I remember thinking to myself. And I also remember thinking, this is, this is the worst day of my life. Not only because I didn't like getting my hair wet, but because I, don't, you know, I didn't want to die in front of Philip Schofield, Gary Davis and a bunch of minor celebrities, you know, live on BBC One on a Saturday morning with, with a shit wetsuit on, you know what I mean? So anyway, it all gets divided up into several teams, maybe four teams or something. And they started telling us about some of the games that we were expected to take part in. And they said, right, we're going to be doing water skiing. So I fucked that off right away. So I'm not doing that. I'm not doing water skiing. I definitely, I would have ended up in hospital. I know I would have, I would have ended up in hospital with that one. And then there was that game where you sit on a big inflatable banana with like 11 other people and then you get dragged around the lake really quick until you fall off. Yeah, that's really funny, isn't it? Yeah. Anyway, so I did that and got away with it unscathed. And there was like a lot of like wakeboarding going on and stuff with beginner tubes and all that. And at some point during the afternoon, we, we had a break and I spent half an hour chatting with um, a recording artist that I knew called Alison Clarkson. And she just had a couple of big hit singles under this uh, alter ego stage name, Betty Boo. You remember Betty Boo? And her tune, Doing the Do, big record, it was in, in the top 10 the weekend that we did this water sports thing, if I remember correctly. So she was pretty big news and she was a top girl as well. She was on the, um, a label called Rhythm King. And because that was an offshoot of the Inspirals label, Mute Records, we had stuff in common with new people. And we ended up chatting anyway in this, uh, in this break that we had during the water sports. And uh, plus, I think she felt a bit uncomfortable about the whole thing too. You know, those ill-fitting wetsuits, they, they don't half chaff the undercarriage, you know what I mean? Mine nearly castrated me whenever I lifted my arms up above my shoulders. You know what I mean? It nearly it did a lot of damage. I tried to think how Betty Boo was getting on with hers down there. Anyway, so me chatting eagerly with Betty Boo for half an hour led to a story popping up in the following week's tabloids, claiming that she and me were now an item and that she would soon become Betty Boone. <laughs> it's brilliant. It's a true story, that. A true story, but built on absolutely no truth whatsoever. Anyway, eventually, the big game of the, the day came, the finale, and it was a version of Pirates, and it involved each team getting allocated a big net full of balloons in, in your team's colour. Probably like 50 or so balloons each in these big nets. And the team then had to build itself a raft out of a, a barrel, a couple of planks and some rope, and then you get your team on, on board your raft, you grab your balloons and you set sail. And you and your fellow pirates have got to paddle your way across the lake in the direction of the other pirate teams who you subsequently attack. You try and break the raft up using oars or whatever. And you steal the balloons and then you head back to shore. And the winning team obviously is going to be whoever's got the most balloons at the end of the, the game, something like that anyway. And we built our raft. No problems there whatsoever because the boon took charge of that. You know, I'm pretty good at that shit. You know, I said, you, like, you do that, you hold that, pass me that, put your finger there, voila, a raft. Something like that, anyway. So it all went well for the first part of the voyage as well, me feeling a bit smug, you know, waving at the crowds like that, feeling all heroic, like Napoleon, smiling for the cameras and that. Raft holding up really well, I thought, look at us here, look at us smashing it here. And eventually, we came face to face with our opponents and it was like in this ramshackle vessel holding the floor. Motley crew of 
socialites and B-list pop stars. <laughs> a bit like our raft, actually. And as we started to prepare ourselves for the attack on our rival pirates, I could feel our craft starting to wobble a bit and disintegrate. And I'm thinking, somebody's, not, somebody's tired of shit not here. Somebody's tired of shit not here. Anyways, so at that moment, when the rafts collided, it was just carnage. It's, our raft fell apart. I could feel myself slipping down into water. I was clawing desperately at anything that might keep me afloat because I, I didn't want to go underwater, you know what I mean? Anyway, it wasn't to be. Within seconds, I was under when I was shitting myself and thinking, Binzi, you knobhead. I swallowed a, a shitload of lake, but to make things worse, I, I was getting tangled up in all this net which had previously held the balloons under the water, was all this net, and I, I, I wasn't in a great situation, to be honest. I was starting to panic a bit. I knew I had to get to the surface quickly because I needed a breath, and I could see the daylight sparkling above the surface. I was desperately pushing upwards, this net round my feet, knowing that if I didn't get a breath in the next second or so, I'd, I'd probably be a goner. Anyway, as I brought the surface, like gasping like that, this sight that I'll never forget as long as I live, I stuck my face skywards like that and opened my mouth, prepared to take that precious breath, and suddenly, early 1990s, it girl, socialite and occasional TV presenter, Amanda Decadenay, one of my enemy pirates, took her right hand, placed it on me forehead and pushed me with all her strength back underwater like that. Now, I would, I would never for one minute, all these years later, suggest that she did this to cause me any harm or any malice whatsoever, because she obviously didn't know my predicament, you know, she didn't know I was shit scared of water. But of all the near-death experiences that I've had, which I think is four in total... I counted them the other night. My experience at the hands of Amanda de Cadenet, it would have been probably the most glamorous ending, really, wouldn't it? I don't think my um, ruptured appendix peritonitis episode from a few years ago would have made the pages of a Hello or OK magazine, you know what I mean? But happily, I live to tell the tale. No bad feelings whatsoever to the evil pirate Amanda de Cadenet. And if anything, subsequently, my fear of water has become even more profound, actually. I still hate the stuff. Betty Boo, Betty Boo just gonna do when you are through And there's nothing you can do Betty Boo, Betty Boo just gonna do when you are through And there's nothing you can do Betty Boo, when you are through I took part in another really dodgy event this time on behalf of uh, the NME, uh, the music magazine. It was the annual pub challenge in about, it must be 1999. And it was held at the Elbow Rooms in uh, Islington, London. And in attendance, a selection of the NME's favourite bands, singers, etc., including myself, Bez was there. I think the uh, Manchester band Alfie were part of it, and a few others who I can't remember. And the get-together was just, it was just an excuse to get people like me drunk, record it all, and hopefully sell a few copies of the NME on the strength of the controversial things that we might all say or do. And on this occasion, I kept things together and generally didn't make too much of a prick of myself. And I got to meet one of my all-time heroes that night, courtesy of Bez, who I knew Bez anyway. But Bez came over to me and said, uh, Clint, have you ever met Joe Strummer? And I said, no, I'd love to. If I ever get the opportunity, I'd love to meet him. And Bez said, he's over here. Come on, I'll introduce you. So Bez walked me over across the elbow room to where the, the pool tables and that. And there was Joe Strummer. And Bez says... Clint, this is Joe. Joe, this is Clint. And Joe Strummer shook me hand, looked me in the eyes, and he just said, Boonami. Like that. Boonami. <laughs> and I thought, you know, if, I, if I'd died, I know it's a cliche, but if I, if I had died at that moment in time, dot, 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 etc., etc., fucking etc., it would have, you know, that would, that would have been enough for me. Joe Strummer. Boonami. Anyway, we chatted for a few minutes, me and Strummer. 
mainly about our kids. It was quite obvious that Joe was a, a very devoted dad. I don't even think we talked about music at the time. And I also got to meet another absolute legend that night who became a close friend of mine over the next few years. And he actually owned the Elbow Room. And he came over and introduced himself. And this big American man with a, a big thick beard and a big beautiful smile and scruffiest pair of moon boots I've ever seen on a man. I mean, it looked like he just, it looked like he'd killed an animal, skinned it and fashioned a pair of boots from, from its hide and, and sinews, you know, it's proper caveman stuff. And he had these boots on and I'm looking at him, he says, Clint, my name's Arthur, Arthur Baker. And he said, oh, I fucking love your band, man. I love your fucking band, man. Anyway, so we sat and had, had drinks in between occasionally getting dragged off to do these uh, enemy pub games, like darts, a bit of pool and that, a few photographs. And he asked if I'd be interested in working on some of the new, new music that he was making at the time. Now, if you know anything about the history of popular music, Arthur Baker, he's something of a, he's a big deal, right? He was present at the, the birth of hip-hop, as far as I'm concerned. At the time, it wasn't even called hip-hop, I don't think. It was just a bunch of Afro-American kids playing with drum machines, a microphone, a stack of old records and, you know, in some of the less salubrious parts of New York. And Arthur explained to me how he'd, he'd go to these underground parties in the Bronx in the late 70s when he was in New York. He was from Boston, but he'd visit New York and eventually settle there. But these kids would be making these incredible new sounds at these parties. And I remember him explaining to me how he said that there'd be all these amazing beats going on, man, and some guy just talking into a microphone over the whole thing. Like that. And this talking into a microphone that Arthur Baker told me about is what we now know as rap. It was the start of rap music. And he was there, he was part of that scene, he was observing it all and taking part in it. And he moved to New York as a, a DJ, producer and um, musician from Boston in uh, 1981. And soon after that, he was totally immersed in the world of you know remixing, producing everything, and became a legend. And Arthur's credited along with his uh, partner in crime back then for some time, Africa Bambata and the Soul Sonic Force, they're credited as making the first ever electronic rap record when they did Planet Rock. And to this day, that is seen as one of the most influential records of all time by means of the way it helped to stylize what became hip-hop and uh, electronic dance music. Check it out, Planet Rock. And uh, Arthur also went on to work with the likes of uh, Bob Dylan, of all people, Al Green and uh, New Order, famously did something with New Order. And now he's asking me if I'd like to collaborate with him. You know what I mean? Uh, yeah, hang on, mate. I'll just check my Vilafax. Of course I want to fucking work with you, you big legend, despite your daft boots and that. I'm coming, man. So within a few days, I was down at Arthur's uh, luxury pad in uh, Camden Town, uh, Camden Lock in London. And I was recording organ and brought my far fees down, recorded some organ and some vocals for a couple of tracks he was working on, which never came out. Ultimately, still on a shelf, I assume, in his place somewhere. But we started getting together on every, every occasion when I'd be in London. We'd get together and I'd go out for food, we'd go and watch a gig, I'd stay at his place and eventually give me my own key. I got my own front door key for his pad so I could just let myself in and out and that. And sometimes he'd be away and there'd be a post in the fridge like, bro, help yourself to whatever's in here. Gone to Florida, back next week, AB. And, and when he was in town, he'd, he'd be up at like six or seven every morning. He had a, a studio up on his like mezzanine level above his bedroom. And he'd be knocking out this really in your face future techno or whatever it became known as. I mean, it wasn't, I, I, I didn't recognise it as a genre at the time. It just sounded like a load of banging, but <laughs> it was music. But part of me felt privileged to be able to, you know, lie in bed and listen to this true pioneer actually in the process of creating his art, you know what I mean? But but part of me really just wished that he'd just fuck off and get back in bed for a bit, you know what I mean? It's like seven o'clock in the morning. This. But I think more than any other individual that I've ever met, Arthur Baker was in his a music making machine there just didn't seem any space in his life 
for anything other than music, apart from fine dining. It was uh, it used to be like his you know top quality food, and I think he ended up with a couple of restaurants. But as my life changed direction a bit, and my trips to London grew less frequent, I, I, I saw less and less of Arthur. We did stay in touch, but. Uh, and I saw him recently, actually. It was at um, Peter Rook's 60th birthday party in Manchester. So I had a little catch-up there. He still looked great. He had a big smile on his face. The boots are long since gone, thankfully. And there's a piece of music which Arthur and I put together, which has never been heard in public. And I'm going to share it with you now. It's literally never been played anywhere in the world. Arthur did a remix of one of my tracks, or Clint Boone Experience track called Life in Transition, which featured uh, operatic vocals from Alfie Bohr. And the music is basically... The stuff that he was working on those mornings when I was staying at his house, I was laying in his spare room and I could hear him banging away with his samplers and his sequences and his drum machines creating this cacophony of electronic noise. This is what he put together for this remix um, that you're about to hear. And then I re-sung my vocal on it, the lead vocal, and I asked uh, Nicky Lockett, a.k.a. MC Tunes, Manchester legend, to come down and uh, do some uh, magical rap over it, which he did. And he stood there in my attic studio, Nick, he just wrote a stack of lyrics on the spot and then put this down first time. I recorded two tracks of it, one slightly lower than the other, to give it this uh, menacing sound. Um, I think it's menacing anyway. But this track, as I said, it never got released and I still consider it to be work in progress. I, I still never got around to putting Alfie Bo's opera vocal back in it, but that was the intention. Uh, there's some music breaks where you would hear Alfie, but maybe next time I play it, yeah, I'll stick them on. Um, but the result, we uh, renamed it Life in Transition As the World Turns. And it'll always transport me back to those times, me and Arthur Baker, a proper unlikely pair, if ever there was one. A very special man that I was uh, incredibly honoured to meet, hang out and, and work with. And I never did give him his door key back, I've still got it here. <laughs> Souvenir. <laughs> Transition, the mission is on. In the race from the day you're born. Take a step before you take a fall. Lose a game before you kick a ball. Get off the sideline, looking for a hand up. You gotta stand up, look into the input. Need to gain, so you feel the strain. Who's to blame? Just take the pain. Some gotta give if some gotta live. Some gotta go if some gotta grow. Try to be the bridge, some for the kids. Make a little dough if it hurts, then change the flow. It's an all out. Transition the call out. Drop the bump, feel the fallout. It's an all out. Transition the call out. Drop the bump, feel the fallout. I seem to think that it was 17 It hit me in the face like the stealth bomber screaming Inspiration is a neighbor of mine See him knocking on my door from time to time And should he ever stagger back this way I'll mark the day in my dearest diary Cause you were the one who swore By the crucifix you on one particular tour of the United States in the early 1990s, I was the first member of the Inspirals touring party to come down with a particularly nasty virus. And the main symptoms of it appeared to be loss of appetite, fainting, and very powerful and spectacular episodes of diarrhoea, right? So I first started to feel unwell as we approached San Francisco one morning. We were in the sleeper bus, and this would be a day off. And I think we're about halfway through a tour, maybe another two or three weeks of gigs to go before we actually went home. And I'm thinking, right, I'm defo coming down with something here. I'm suffering here. I'll check into the hotel. I'll go and get some food immediately and then spend the rest of the day and the night just resting in preparation for the next night's gig. Um, so anyway, early that afternoon, we checked in the hotel early in the afternoon. I sat down in a restaurant around the corner with our tour manager, Andrew Mancy, and a couple of lads out of the band. 
And I was feeling totally rank, but thinking I'd be best to just get some food inside me. And after a week or so of partying before and after gigs, get some food in, inside me and get down and drink some water, try and get rid of this bug, you know, try and get out of my system. So I sat there in the restaurant, proper feeling sorry for myself. And I ordered my, my food and within seconds of it arriving, I fainted and I just fell face down into my dish like that. And I don't mind admitting to you now that I, I simultaneously suffered the first real accident in the, the toilet department of my adult life, really. I mean, I I touched cloth a few times, but never anything like this. This was like, this was, you know, it's proper. Like, I just followed through in my best white fibre ones and I was fainted in my food, you know what I mean? I was in a, a right state. And it's a good indication of my general state of being around that time in my career that for the first five minutes, my fellow diners, Mansi and the lads, just thought I was being a dick. They're like that. Look at Clint again. Come on, Clint, get your head out of your suit. Fucking attention seeker. Clint, wake up. Clint, wake up. Anyway, they realised eventually that I was having problems. And they helped me to come round. They got me some water. Packed me off to the, the men's room. <laughs> and eventually chaperoned me back to the, the hotel and off to bed. And that was it then. For, for the next few days, I completely had, had the piss taken. Like you would do, wouldn't you? You know, Clint shat himself. <laughs> a loser. What, me walking around with my head down and that. Yeah, shot myself, yeah, sorry, you know, what a loser, yeah. Anyway, but then it happened, and another one of the band came down with it, and then one of the crew, and then another one, and then another one. So over the next 10 days or so, that nasty little bug swept through the Inspiral's entourage like a tsunami, like a merciless brown tsunami, leaving no soul untouched. <laughs> no arsehole, in fact. But the last day of this tour, saw a new phrase enter the Inspiral's um, in-house dictionary in band dictionary one member of the band who shall remain nameless forever he suffered the explosive and spontaneous and uncontrollable effects of the bug like I'd had at San Francisco he had it while he was packing up to leave this hotel in New York and his devastated underpants let's say were spotted by his bandmates in his room as he prepared to check out and the phrase New Yorkers <laughs> now refers to items of underwear which due to the effects of either ill health or bad timing are better off disposed of completely rather than washed, right? And a good example of the correct use of the phrase would be as a part of my moped in the back street behind Affleck's Palace, I had to step over several pair of New Yorkers casually discarded after the previous night's Northern Quarter revelry. You get what I'm saying? We've all seen them, haven't we? Look at New Yorkers. Ooh. So that, anyway, the phrase New Yorkers in that way is well, it, by no means a comment or a reference to the people who live in New York. No, not, not at all. On another occasion talking about tummy bugs on the road. I got food poisoning after having a Chinese meal in Leeds following an Inspiral's gig. So I did the gig, went out for Chinese. And I'm convinced it was a prawns. I, I always like to have prawns. But... So I drove home after the meal towards Rochdale. I started feeling rough on the way home. I was in agony through the night, didn't sleep at all. And we were due to play in Leicester the following night. So the band were picking me up at the crack of dawn in the little tour bus thing. And we're also due to do a signing in a record shop in Leicester, like signing a load of records for fans and that, before the sound check. So they're expecting a couple hundred fans and they're estimating we've been there about an hour in this record shop. So first thing in the morning, I got up before the, the buzz came for me. I went straight to the doctor's and he confirmed that I'd got food poisoning. He said, right, you need to go home, drink lots of water, stay in bed for 24 hours. <laughs> I'm thinking, God, I've got to be on buzz in half an hour. Anyway, 45 minutes later, I'm climbing into the tour bus this Volkswagen splitter outside my house in Milner or Rochdale. It carried like eight or nine people and some baggage in the back. And it had a big sliding door on the side, which a lot of these um, 
vehicles do. And it was a bit damaged and it needed a real big load of strength to slam it shut. And the crew and equipment travelled separately to the gig so that they could be setting up while we did the, the record signing session. So I got on the bus and I explained to the boys, I said, look, I've been up all night spewing and shitting and that. I wasn't in any mood for the usual tour bus shenanigans like hide and seek or rustic crass, whatever they called it, or rip, rip a page out of the end of Tom's current favourite book. I said, I'm not having I'm just going to get my head down and try and relax and get this bug out of my system. And the, the band really sympathetic. You know, the trip to Leicester was okay. They kept the noise down. They had videos on all that, but we had to stop the van a couple of times so that I could run into a petrol station or behind a tree to sort myself out. Whatever. But the band and crew were great. They watched videos all the way. We got to Leicester in good time. Parked up near the record shop and we all went in, worked the audience, you know, signed a lot of autographs, drew a lot of cows, posed for photographs. I still felt really shit. I was still having really bad stomach cramps. and this terrible headache. And when the signing was over, we all got back on the bus and I got in first, curled up on the back seat again. The rest of the band climbed in behind me. And then I could hear Mansi in the front shouting, the fucking battery's dead. It won't start, the fucking battery's dead. So the engine was, the battery was flat because we'd left the video machine playing when we got out of the record shop. So the video would be on for like an hour on the TV and that, and it just flattened the battery. So Mansi said, right, you're all going to have to get out and push it. We'll, we'll, we'll uh, bump start it. And I'm thinking, perfect, just the fucking job. Just, just, you know, do I need this right now? So everybody piled out of the van. And I was the last one out, so Craig, our drummer, was just ahead of me. And Craig very innocently assumed that I'd be staying in the van because I was so ill. So he gets out, and as he swung his full weight behind the vehicle's sliding door to shut it, my little head popped out and took the full impact of the door to the left side of my skull and the door frame to the right side of my skull. My head was literally violently squashed in this most bizarre fashion in this door. And I, oh, I flopped back onto the seat and... My back was facing Mansi because he was still in the driving seat. I had my hands to my head because I was convinced that my skull was splitting half. There was blood everywhere, like blood I've never seen. And I'm, I said something online, so fucking hell, that's it, innit? My head's gone on it, my head's gone on it. I was holding my head together. And Mansi leaned over, he said, well, let's put it this way. He said, keep your hands worthy half for a minute while I have a look. So he comes round and he says to me, he says, yeah, it's the right fucking mess, especially your left ear. And he was wretched. It's like that looking at me. I said, what's wrong with my left ear? He said, well, it's like it's, it's gaping open and it's inside out. It looks horrible. And I'm like, sorry, man. <laughs> he says, right, I need to get you to hospital right away because this looks really bad. And I, I could feel, you know, done a, I felt concussed. And someone from the venue bundled me into a car. I think we got a, a lift to the hospital rather than waiting for an ambulance or whatever. And the band made the way to the venue eventually after getting the van going. And at the hospital, they immediately diagnosed me with concussion and a, a moderate head injury, I think they called it. And they stitched me back into position, did various tests to make sure that I didn't have any, you know, fractured skull or brain damage. And I remember they did mention at one point that my speech was slurred and slightly hard to understand. And I explained I, I had food poisoning and, and I was brought up in Oldham, so don't be worrying about that. Mansi was still retching all the way through this, retching and pissing himself, laughing, you know, throughout the entire hospital visit, just stopping occasionally to take photographs of my injury, you know what I mean, and my, my predicament. And I missed the sound check completely. But I arrived at the venue in time to do the gig and my head was still caked in all this dried blood by this time. And it was, I was in too much pain to wash my hair or take a shower. I was still killing. So I just put a baseball hat on, swept all my hair back into a ponytail at the back of this hat. And I just got really drunk quick and went on stage. And that saying, every cloud has a silver lining, that head injury completely took my thoughts away from the food poisoning that I'd woken up with that day. Talk about over and above the call of duty. 
That was me that day. I was a proper hero. On every episode of Storytime with Boone, I like to talk about a particular song that I've written and uh, what inspired it and how it came about. One of my favourite Inspiral songs to play live is Generations. It was the opening track of our 1992 album, uh, Revenge of the Goldfish. And it's such a great track live because over the years, our fans have taken to singing along to the organ riffs on a lot of the songs that we play. And they seem the loudest when we play Generations, I think because the riffs are just a nice pace and it's quite simple to sing along to as well. And it was recorded in Liverpool at the uh, Amazon Studios, which was uh, it soon became Par Street soon afterwards. It was in early 1992 when we recorded it. Produced by the legendary Pascal Gabriel. And Pascal's production on that album, it completely helped to bring the Inspirals back into the mainstream because our second album, Beast Inside, it had taken us away from our garage pop roots a bit and I think it was a bit too much for some of our fans and critics so it wasn't that well received even though it got to number five in the uh, the album chart. So, But yeah, I think a lot of fans wanted us to get back to that, that garage sound which we did in the uh, third album. It was held as this great comeback by some people in the, the worlds of press and radio at the time and the four singles from it all went top 40 so it was a very successful album. It was definitely the return of the classic Inspiral sound that people fancied, you know, people wanted to hear. And I don't think my Farfisa electric organ has ever sounded any better than it does on the recording of Generations. It sounds brilliant. The lyrics to Generations were inspired quite simply by two people, my dad and my nephew, Michael, at the time. I didn't have any kids of my own back then. And the first verse is me singing to Michael, who was 27 years younger than me at the time. So he would have been about four or five. And he was the first of my nephews or nieces to arrive. He, the first time I became Uncle Clint was when my brother Craig had this little boy, Michael. And you can tell by the words, I was pretty chuffed about having, having a nephew. And his sister Becky arrived soon after him and became my, my first niece. And there's a line in the, the days we spend are sent from heaven and you're always on my mind. I used to have this really funky little uh, TBR Tasman sports car and it only had two seats in it. And we'd often go for rides with one or both of the kids lay down on the back window shelf of the car, which I don't think you'd get away with these days, which is squashed up against the glass like that. Uncle Clint, go faster. Uncle Clint, go faster. And the second verse of the song, Generations, is me singing to my dad. So he was 27 years older than me, coincidentally. He had this 27 thing that kept cropping up. And the line there, the days we spend are sent from heaven and you've given me my life. I don't think he ever pointed that lyric out to my dad. I think he'd like that one. And... Uh, the whole song is about the passage of time and each generation passing things on to the next. And there's a little rap thing that goes on in the middle eight where it's sing, planet spins, planet spins, and another generation gives the hope and the joy and the life to the beat of the heart of the next. And it's it's all just all about that continuation of life, you know what I mean? And I think there's a little line in there as well that I stole from a Martin Luther King speech, isn't there? Free at last, free at last. Uh, thank God Almighty, we're free at last. I don't know why I put that in. Just, I just thought it'd fit. I've not had any... Uh, lawyers' letters from the uh, Luther King estate yet. I was never that mad on the video that we made for Generations, to be honest with you. We decided to work with um, one of the world's leading pop video makers at the time, 
Matt Mahurin, it was called, and uh, it was also known for his work with uh, Metallica and Soundgarden and Alice in Chains. He did R.E.M.'s Orange Crush as well. And Matt had this very stylistic technique uh, or a series of techniques that ran throughout his work back then. And I personally felt that the sentiment behind the song and its lyrics were pretty much ignored in favour of this um, specific look that was very popular on American MTV at the time. On its release as a single in 1992, Generations give us our seventh top 40 single in two years. And uh, so we're all, we're all buzzing. You know, it was a great record. We all loved it. The fans loved it. People bought it. And if the little melody in the verse is a little familiar, it's, uh, it does bear a passing resemblance to the Human League sound of the crowd. And I realised that when I was writing the tune, when I was composing it on my organ, I thought there is a similarity between this organ riff and the Human, the human League synth part. But I just thought, I'll just go on with it. Sounds right. Get it out there. Oki won't mind. I've not heard from him. He's not complained either. So, Michael is now 30. Becky's in her late 20s. They've both got kids of their own. I've now got five kids of my own and a total of 11 nephews and nieces. My dad, Cyril, shuffled off to the great allotment in the sky five years ago. And listening to Generations now, it's, it does carry quite a powerful human message, I think. Like, the, you know, the clock does carry on ticking and generations do come and go and you know the planet spins planet spins i think it's one of the best bits of writing to be honest with you So we're here now in what was uh, until recently the uh, the front lounge of the Boone House in Stockport. It's recently been taken over by the Boone Boys, Oscar X and Cassius and the Friends. And it's now officially the music room, isn't it, Oscar? Yeah. How are you? Good. You've got your big bass guitar there across yeah. your knee. So you only started playing bass, Oscar, back in January, so six months ago. Yes. And did you play instruments before that? Uh, I, I played the recorder. I could play a lot of on a recorder. And a, a, like a flutey thing? Yeah. <laughs> right. You've started doing a bit of a uh, six-string guitar and drums as well, haven't you? Are you going to give us some demonstration of your bass skills then for my podcast? Um, okay, sure. What do, do you, you want to do it, first? Any suggestions, I guess? I think you should um, maybe start with... Do you want to do any Chili Peppers ones? I'm trying to do high ground, but it's really hard to get the strings to ring out. Hold on. Kind of, um, <laughs> Sounds spot on, Oscar. Do it again. Uh, okay, hold on. That's slightly better. Slapping and everything is brilliant. What else have you been listening to? Uh, I'm trying to think right now, actually. What about the night when uh, you, you came into the lounge and mummy and daddy were watching? Glastonbury, oh, M- yeah. Muse were on. Hysteria. Uh, you were telling me all about it, and then by the next day I could I could do the entire, like, you know, not the entire song, but like the riff. The know. bass riff. Hysteria, Muse, yeah. Do it. Yeah. <laughs> 
Sounds great, Oscar. Uh, what about that Beatles tune that you played right at the beginning when you first picked up your bass? Uh, slightly changed. Did time. it come together? Yeah. Slightly changed. Yeah. Slightly changed. Yeah. Slightly changed. said the other day about you fancy playing another instrument don't you now you want to learn something else what do you fancy learning uh, if I, I don't really know honestly what about sitar sitar maybe honestly sitar should try that I don't know if I had to choose maybe cello I don't know that's just the first thing that pops into my head because it's it's smaller than a double bass hmm. it's sort of like a more, it's like a classic sort of string instrument as well yeah. I don't know it's a beautiful sound isn't it possibly it sounds like your um, your ganger arriving. Sorry. Your ganger starting oh, to yeah, arrive. Oh yeah, outside. Your Hector playing with Hector and whatnot. So do you think do you think ultimately you'd like to be a professional musician, Oscar, when you when you grow up? Uh yeah. What you want to do? Yes. Okay, watch Ideally. this space, podcast listeners. Oscar Louis Louis Boone, give us one more baseline before we go. Okay. demonstration Oscar thanks for talking to uh, Storytime with Moon that's it for episode 21 hope you've enjoyed it again uh, if you've not already clicked on the subscribe button on iTunes please do so and it'd be great if you could leave me some uh, feedback on the iTunes comments section as well and thanks to all of you that have already been doing that thanks again to Distorted Productions for helping me to get story time to you and don't forget if you're a fan of new unsigned upcoming music have a listen to my other podcast it's called Clint Boone's Set to Go and it's available on iTunes as a free download episode 3 is available now as always I'm going to leave you with an unsigned band and on this episode, Foxtails, five-piece band from Manchester, Amy on vocals, guitar and mandolin, Cassie vocals and guitar, Angela vocals, mandolin and bass, Bryony rocks the bass like no other, and it says here, and Schoon is the drummer, uh, they're from Manchester, I did get to meet them at Kendall Calling this year, lovely bunch of people, and music to match as well, it's dreamy, it's trippy, it's hippie, it's new age, it's just beautiful, beautiful vocals and delicate instrumentation I'm not aware of anybody else in the city making music quite like this at the moment maybe the travelling band in the more tender moments they've got a debut single stroke EP available now it's called Spider and I'm going to leave you with this mesmerising piece of music by Fox Tales and it's Spider I'll see you soon lots of love to you
Storytime with Boone. Subscribe now on iTunes.